Although this is very Christmassy in, in, in some senses, it's uh, part of the series in Isaiah that we've been doing, which will complete the first 12 chapters. Keep calm, don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of those two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says, It will not take place, it will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. Within 65 years Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with, birth, with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Let's ask God to help us understand this. Our Heavenly Father, we, when we read passages like this, we can easily become confused by the peculiar names and the ancient history, Lord. But we ask, Lord, that you will help us in our mind's eye to engage with that situation, that world, to understand through that what you would say to us today. Please, Lord, we pray, give us insight by your Holy Spirit that we may be changed through your powerful word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. think about it, children actually embody the hopes and fears of uh, our world, don't they? Our hopes and fears for the future. The uh, failures of children actually excite particular anxiety in us. Do you remember the the horrible murder of Jamie Bulger and the outcry that uh, came from the fact that children had been involved in such wickedness? And uh, there is real anxiety at the moment about rising violence in schools again. Because in our minds, children are our future. But actually children also bear our hopes for the future, don't they? Uh, hence we give so much attention always to, uh, uh, to the upbringing of children. Uh, Tony Blair was, uh, was a wise man when in 1997 he used as his election slogan that his priorities were education, education, education. Rings a bell with people. We must 
be investing in the next generation. If the next generation is worse than this one, then what hope is there for us? If the next generation is better than this one, perhaps we're heading towards a bright new future. The Bible actually very clearly endorses and approves of that perspective on the future. The whole of the Bible actually is a story about children, about one generation following another and how uh, uh, human society and the world develops as a result of it. It's uh, 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 in every generation in the Bible, children are exactly the focus of the hopes and fears of the Bible. At the beginning of the Bible story, actually, it makes pretty depressing reading. Remember, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, are created uh, perfect, but uh, they sin, they fall, they become alienated from God and from each other, and their two sons take it even further. Cain murders Abel. And within a few generations we find that that cycle of revenge and violence has got completely out of control. At one point in the early chapters of Genesis, God observes that all their thoughts were only evil all of the time. It it looks pretty bad. But then, in Genesis chapter 12, the tide seems to turn. And it turns because God makes a promise. The promise is to a man called Abraham. God promises to this man, Abraham, that through his children, his descendants, all nations on the earth will be blessed. And in Abraham's life, that promise that hope becomes focused on the one and only son that Abraham had, Isaac. Thereafter in the Bible, the the central thread of the Bible's story actually follows Abraham's descendants from father to son, father to son, father to son. Every generation looking for the one son who bears the hope that God has placed into the story when he spoke to Abraham. Isaiah chapters 7 to 9 is a vital chapter, vital part of that great story of creation and disaster and hope given to Abraham. Isaiah wants us to think of that uh, strand clearly because children are prominent in every chapter 7, 8 and 9 of, uh, uh, of this book. In every chapter, the unspoken question is, where is that child promised to Abraham? Where is the child who will bless the whole world? Chapter 7 describes what uh, we could call a sign child. Chapter 8 describes a doom child. Chapter 9 describes a hope child. First of all, then, 
we're going to uh, look at the sign child. If you'll uh, excuse the phraseology. The sign child in Isaiah chapter 7. The simple answer um, to the uh, uh, Bible's perennial question, by the time we get to Isaiah 7, this perennial question, where is the, the, the child of hope? The simple answer actually is, <coughs> well, King Ahaz. See, Ahaz is a direct descendant of David. He traced his uh, genealogy through, uh, 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 through David all the way back, actually, to Abraham. Ahaz, the king of Judah, the king of the southern kingdom of Israel, is uh, uh, the one on whose shoulders all that hope from hundreds, thousands of years before was laid. But Ahaz is in trouble. Verse 1, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, Pekah, son of Remaliah of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. They could not overpower it. The political situation in Ahaz's day was very difficult. If you were here, um, if you've been here in pre- previous we- weeks, you'll remember that there had been years of peace. But now there is a great superpower looming on the horizon, Assyria, with their king Tiglath-Pileser. Tiglath-Pileser was starting to threaten the whole of uh, uh, the world as they knew it. He had already defeated Babylon, the kingdom that had been the greatest. And now he is starting to look west. The only hope actually seems to be for these little kingdoms down on the border of the Mediterranean, the only hope seems to be an alliance of kings. There is Pekah, son of Remaliah, in the northern kingdom of Israel, which is sometimes called Ephraim in this, um, in this passage. Uh, his, ca- his capital was Samaria. Then north of him, there is uh, Rezin, a non-Israelite kingdom of Aram, whose capital was uh, uh, Damascus. And they proposed, these two kings proposed to make an alliance together against Syria. But they needed a key third king, the king of Judah, Ahaz, if it was going to be successful. And Ahaz wasn't willing to form part of that alliance. So Pekah and Rezin hatched a plot. They decided to have a coup, not funded by Mark Thatcher as far as I'm aware, um, they, they uh, decided that they needed to march down to Judah, depose Ahaz, and install a puppet king who's mentioned in uh, uh, verse 6, uh, the son of Tabil. But their initial effort failed. But Ahaz was a frightened man. Ahaz was deeply tempted to appeal direct to the superpower, to Assyria, to make himself and Judah into a vassal state under the control of that superpower and therefore protect himself against these other minor kings in his area. And Isaiah's response is very clear. Verse 4, Say to him, 
Be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, do not lose heart. Be careful actually to do nothing. Don't be afraid, says Isaiah. Just do nothing, Ahaz. Sometimes the clearest sign of faith, actually, amongst God's people, is that they do nothing. They don't fill their time with clever schemes. They don't suck up to the biggest powers in the world. They don't make dodgy compromises with others who are running scared of the superpowers. They simply get on with what God has called them to do and let the storm blow itself out around them. Activity actually can sometimes be a sign of lack of faith. Sometimes God's people just have to do nothing. God's uh, assessment of Pekar and Rezin's political plans is pretty, pretty scathing. It's found in verses 7 to 9. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. The head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. The head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son, he says. Isaiah is so contemptuous, actually, he won't even bother to mention Pekar's name. He just names him as Remaliah's son. These nations, these other nations to your north, says, uh, says God, only have human beings, men as their head. But what is unsaid is that the head of Judah is Jerusalem, the capital city. And the head of Jerusalem is not Ahaz. Is the sovereign Lord Himself. Why, uh, why bother to worry then about these petty kings when God is sovereign over His land? See, the question is not actually here whether God will keep His promises somehow through the nation of Judah to uh, raise up a son who will bless all the nations. The question is whether Ahaz qualifies perhaps to be that son. God offers him a sign. Verse 10. Ask the Lord, your God, for a sign, whether it's in the deepest depths or in the highest heights, he says. Just sometimes God does offer us signs. Jesus warned not to be obsessed with signs. He warned us that a a wicked and adulterous generation are constantly running after signs. But occasionally God does offer a sign. And here's a sign that God specifically offers. Verse 12, here's Ahaz's responses. Response, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. This is pious claptrap trap. 
You know, she's quoting the Bible, do not put the Lord your God to the test. But actually, just to hide up a complete lack of faith, a complete lack of guts, a complete lack of backbone. He doesn't want to be persuaded to do nothing. It feels just too insecure. He and everyone is is, uh, shaken like the leaves on the trees, it says. And God is angry with that. Verse 13, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give, and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Ahaz has actually forfeited any claim he has to be the child of promise. God is going to give them another child of promise. A sign child. These famous words, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, so clearly seem to anticipate Jesus that they've caused um, um, great stirs amongst people who want to be sceptical about, uh, about the reliability of the Bible. A um, hundred years ago, hundred plus years ago, um, those who were uh, uh, sceptical about the uh, reliability of the Bible used to say that uh, it must be that the book of Isaiah was tampered with after Jesus had come. We didn't, at, at that point, have any um, complete documents of Isaiah that were definitely written before the time of Jesus. So they suggested uh, uh, clever Christians had taken uh, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah and um, had inserted little bits to make it uh, anticipate Jesus more accurately. And this was one of the bits they suggested was inserted. And then uh, in the 1940s, a shepherd boy was um, wandering through the desert in the Middle East, came across the, what are now the famous Qumran caves. Amongst those was found a complete document of the prophecy of Isaiah dating back to before the time of Jesus and all the texts were in place. So people started um, uh, trying to find other reasons why this may not be an accurate prediction of miraculous birth of Jesus. Some have suggested that um, when it says the virgin will be with, with child all that Isaiah really meant was um, a young unmarried woman will have uh, a child. But actually more recent careful examination of uh, uh, ancient Hebrew use of, uh, of the word indicate very strongly that quite specifically that word doesn't just mean an unmarried woman. Of course unmarried women tended to be virgins uh, in, uh, in those days. But it doesn't just mean an unmarried woman. It means a woman who is technically a virgin. Some people have objected that um, uh, the problem with this this prophecy is that it seems to uh, be a sign aimed at Ahaz himself. And Ahaz 
of course, lived 800 years before Christ was born. We're told that before the child has uh, uh, grown up, um, before he's uh, old enough to distinguish right and wrong, these kings, Pekar and Rezin, will be no more. Well, um, certainly true, strictly speaking, they've been no more for about 800 years. Aha, um, say, say people, surely this, this cannot be a prophecy of Jesus coming 800 years later. Well, it is true. Um, often prophecies in the Old Testament um, seem to, uh, to, to anticipate a relatively quick fulfilment. There seems to be uh, um, a not complete clarity on the part of, of the prophets. Uh, uh, in the New Testament, the New Testament uh, agrees with that. 1 Peter chapter 1, for instance, says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. It does seem, actually, that the prophets didn't see with perfect clarity. And... Um, uh, uh, perhaps if you'd sat Isaiah down 800 years before the birth of Christ and said, uh, you know it's going to take 800 years, he'd have been a little bit surprised. But interestingly enough, the phraseology, the Lord himself will give you a sign, is plural. And the, uh, it is addressed to the house of David. Not just Ahaz himself. Maybe Isaiah has seen at least enough to get an inkling that this may be something that David's, uh, Ahaz's descendants, the ongoing house of David, will see. But not necessarily something Ahaz will see. No, uh, try as we might. Really, it is difficult to pour doubt on the uh, nature of this prophecy. 800 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah was saying, one day there will be a sign child, a child who will be born of a virgin, a miraculous birth. A child, actually, who will have a humble life. Do you see that? Um, uh, he will eat curds and honey, verse 15, when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the, the right. Curds and honey sounds very attractive, uh, actually. Um, uh, uh, but uh, it becomes clear at the end of the chapter what's being talked about is the, it, it will be the fruit of land which is not cultivated. Curds from wild goats, honey from wild bees. He'll have a simple life. And what's more, this child will choose that simple life. It's when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. That's when he will choose to lead this humble life. But most extraordinary, this is going to be a divine birth. He will be called Emmanuel which means God with us. This actually 
is a, is, a, is a vital moment in the whole of the Old Testament story because there have been two visions of hope for the future that, uh, that the Old Testament have had up to now. One we've talked about uh, a lot. It's the hope of a child running down through the generations, the hope that one day there will be a child who will rule the whole world and will bring blessings to the whole world. But there's also been another hope that has popped up again and again, and that is that God himself will come. So, uh, in the story of the Exodus, when Israel was delivered from Egypt, for instance, God says, I have come down to deliver my people. And from then on, and we'll see next week, it continues in Isaiah, there was, there was the hope of another exodus when God would come down and deliver his people. Now, says Isaiah, those two hopes are united in one child. He is both a uh, child born of a woman and God with us. In Ahaz, you see, in the time of Ahaz, it becomes very, very clear that no ordinary child is ever going to produce, fulfil the promise that God has made. Ahaz doesn't. He's fearful, faithless, foolish. And no other ordinary child descended from him ever will. God himself will have to come in human form to liberate his people. God made man dwelling with us. God choosing to live with us in simplicity. God bringing blessing to all nations. God the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the sign child. He, his birth is the great sign to us that Ahaz was promised. And still, we refuse, like Ahaz so often, to heed him. Just to give you one extremely popular example at the moment of that um, totally spurious refusal to look at the sign that God has given you, uh, g- g- given us. Um, some of you will uh, know this uh, book by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. It is a massive bestseller. 18 million copies of this book have been sold. Number one bestseller in the States and in this country. It's a novel, but it, it claims to portray facts. Actually, early reviewers applauded it as uh, impeccable research, but um, uh, that has since been completely blown out of the water. The facts that Dan Brown uh, tries to present to us are, are that uh, Jesus was actually married to Mary Magdalene and had children. That was suppressed by a male conspiracy in the church. Um, uh, Dan Brown says that the church invented Jesus' deity hundreds of years later. That's actually a laughable lack of knowledge 
even the most sceptical scholars who don't believe Jesus was the Son of God would, uh, would never claim that it was invented hundreds of years later. Overwhelming evidence that the very first Christians believed Jesus was truly the Son of God. Dan Brown says that all miracles are myth and so on and on the story, on, on the fictions go. Principal character Langdon in the book says this, Every religion describes God through metaphor, allegory and exaggeration from the early Egyptians through modern Sunday school. Metaphors are a way to process the unprocessable. The problems arise when we begin to believe literally in our own metaphors. If you could dig up documentation that contradicted the holy stories of Islamic belief, Judaic belief, Buddhist belief, pagan belief, should we do that? Should we wave a flag and say that Jesus was not born of a literal virgin birth? Those who truly understand their faiths understand the stories are metaphorical. Sophie, another character, looked sceptical. My friends who are devout Christians definitely believe that Christ literally walked on water, literally turned water into wine, was born of a literal virgin birth. My point exactly, Langdon said. Religious allegory has become a part of the fabric of reality and living in that reality helps millions of people cope and be better people. But it appears their reality is false. Now the shocking claim of Christianity is that these uh, um, miracle stories about Jesus, these claims to his divinity, are not exaggeration, are not allegory. They're true. Certainly they, they can't be verified in the way that you verify a chemical experiment in a test tube. But Christians have always said that they should be submitted to the best analysis and the best verification of historical truth that can be applied. And have not shrunk from that. Dan Brown has self-consciously created a fiction. Sad, sad thing is that a frightening number of people seem to take it on trust. In fact, there's even uh, in one survey a, a rather large proportion of people who uh, said that they accepted that uh, the Da Vinci Code was complete fiction but they still believed what it claimed. How they managed to hold those two things in their minds, I don't know. But Christians don't. Christians say the uh, truth about Jesus lives or dies by whether the virgin was with child and gave birth to God with us. This is the sign, child, then. But then there is another child who we'll look at very, very briefly. Isaiah 8 describes this doom child. Chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll, write it on it with an ordinary pen, Mahashalal Hashbaz. That's where Peter got that name from. It means, uh, so the NRV says, um, uh, Quick to the plunder, swift 
to the spoil. And I will call in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Zeberachiah as reliable witnesses for me. And I went to the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son and the Lord said to me, Name him Mahashalal Hashbaz. And before the no- boy knows how to say my father or my mother, let, let alone Mahashalal Hashbaz, uh, the wealth of Damascus, the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. We um, see extraordinary names in the schools these days, but none quite that extraordinary. And the question surely after Isaiah 7 is, could Mahashalal Hashbaz be the sign child? Of course, the answer is no. He is born in the ordinary way. He's not even the first child whom uh, Isaiah uh, fathers. Um, uh, He is not the sign child. Rather, he is another child. A child whose uh, existence pronounces doom on the people. Verse 19, When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this world, uh, they have no light, this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land When they are famished they will become enraged and look upward and will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. They will be thrust into utter darkness. Perhaps it is significant that this child is born in the ordinary way. This child is part of the web of ordinary human existence. And the only thing he can point to in the future is the horror of ignoring God the horror of ignoring God's word that will leave people in the end only looking to heaven and cursing God and looking at the earth and seeing only distress there is no hope from a child born in the ordinary way But Isaiah doesn't leave us there. Chapter 9 reveals a hope child. Another child here. In verse 6, a child is born. To us a son is given. And Isaiah's assessment of this child is far more positive. Um, Verse verse 1, Nevertheless there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. No more gloom. When this child comes, honour for Galilee of the Gentiles. Perhaps that's because it was an outback, an unnoticed corner of the kingdom where this child would come from. Perhaps actually it's called Galilee of the Gentiles because it's a place of contact with the wider world from where a son could reach out. Not just to his own people, but to the whole world. Of course, Galilee of the Gentiles is exactly where Jesus lived as a young man. He will bring 
light. Verse 2. The people in walk, in walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Um, especially notice light which um, uh, overcomes the shadow of death. Light which transcends death. Light which has broken perhaps the power of death. And he will bring joy. Verse 3. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. The joy of harvest, the joy of victory, that's the joy that this uh, uh, son will bring. And he will bring freedom too. As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Uh, recalling uh, the great, uh, great victory in the, in the book of Judges where the nation of Midian was defeated, but also recalling a greater victory still over Egypt where the yoke of slavery that they bore in Egypt was broken. And he's going to do it again. He's going to give freedom, says uh, Isaiah. And he's going to bring peace too. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. This child then fulfills the hope of the Old Testament. A final great leader in the line of David. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Here is the fulfilment of that human line of hope that has travelled through, through the Bible. But he is also that divine leader, that God-made man too. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Yes, he can bring light and joy and freedom and peace because he is wonderful counsellor. The one who can teach us things that no one else ever could. He is mighty God. This king is called God himself. He is everlasting father, eternally caring for his people, eternally delivering them. He is prince of peace. Princes tend to bring war but not this one he is the prince of peace this is for Jesus whom we are looking forward whose birth we are looking forward to celebrating in just a couple of weeks the light that Jesus gives is as Paul puts it the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ a light which actually even breaks through the shadow of death because it promises us life after death. The joy that Jesus gives, this harvest joy, this victory joy, is the joy of Jesus. Jesus' intention was that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete, he said. It is a joy that sometimes weeps and mourns for the fallenness of this world. But it's a joy which is a confident in God's final harvest. Confident in God's final victory. Because Jesus died on the cross 
for our sins, paid for every sin that we could have committed and offers us forgiveness and then rose again to promise us eternal victory even over death. The freedom that Jesus gives is freedom from the guilt and power of sin. No longer does guilt need to weigh us, uh, uh, guilt need to weigh us down. No longer does sin need to dominate us. The peace that Jesus gives is peace with God. And, says the Bible, from beginning to end, only God made man can do this. Question for us and how many countless others this Christmas is Will we ignore the sign child who announced his coming long before? Or will we seek the light and joy and freedom and peace that only wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace can bring? Christina Rossetti wrote this about the future hope that she was looking forward to. Not this world of hope deferred, this world of perishable stuff. Eye hath not seen, not ear hath heard, nor heart conceived that full enough. Here moans the separating sea, Here harvests fail. Here breaks the heart. There God shall join and no man part. I full of Christ and Christ of me.